Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. You know, my mother always said, I look after you when you're young and when I'm old, you've got to look after me. And it, it's difficult to figure out how you fulfil that expectation. These are conversations that, you know, as health professionals, we have with families to help them figure it out because there's no right or wrong answer. Hi, it's Hilton Coffee with you again for Dementia in Practice. I'm coming to you from Lennox Head. It's springtime here and you can probably hear the birds singing along in the background. Dementia in Practice is a podcast made by GPs for GPs and for other health professionals who are looking to learn more about dementia. So far, we've done episodes looking at diagnosis of dementia, its prevention, and some of the management strategies that we can use to help people living with dementia. We've spoken to people with lived experience of dementia as well as their family and carers. As always, Dr. Marita Long and Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me for this episode. And at this point, I'd love to take a moment to say thank you to everyone for the amazing feedback we've received about the podcast so far. It's been so great to hear your comments and the lovely emails that we've had um, have been really, really appreciated by us as a team. And we're just so proud of the podcast so far and really pleased that everyone seems to be enjoying it yeah and remember you can if you're listening on apple Podcasts, there is a place there where you can leave a review which would be excellent because the more reviews we can get that's going to mean the more people will eventually find it as a podcast and don't forget to share it with your friends and all your patients so in this episode we're going to look at approaches to assisting people who come from cultural or linguistically diverse backgrounds Steph, I know working in Adelaide, you've had a lot of experience working with multicultural communities. Could you tell us a little bit about what your experience has been? Yeah, I've, I've just finished a job for the last six months working with the multidisciplinary community team. And I was fascinated to see how many um, different groups of people there are from all over the world in Australia. There really is a, this big melting pot of people and they all come from different cultural backgrounds, but have different levels of um, English speaking. And so it's really fascinating to see how that impacts on their experience of, of having um, a, a possible diagnosis of dementia. So I've been speaking to Professor Lee Fei Lo, who um, is a researcher at the University of Sydney and has done a lot of work looking into culturally and linguistically diverse populations and how this is impacted in terms of um, receiving a diagnosis of dementia and also for those people who are living with a, a diagnosis of dementia. And she told me a lot about some of the findings they have had and how this changes in different populations. Right, let's have a listen to the interview. We know that every person with dementia and their family's journey is different and it's useful to have a cultural lens while interpreting kind of how someone presents or what support someone needs, but we really need to be person-centered in our approach as well. 
That's right, because even if you come from one cultural background, it's not a homogenous group, is it? Everybody is different and different families will have had different experiences and they'll have different setups. I totally agree with that statement. And, you know, even within a cultural group, there's different cultural groups. So Chinese from different countries are different. Chinese from different parts of China are different. People who speak Arabic actually come from many different countries with different religions and cultures. So, you know, while it's useful to have some general cultural lens, um, we really need to be person-centered. We talk to a lot of people with dementia and carers from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds as part of our research projects. And we know that there are, I guess, two main barriers to getting a diagnosis. The first is stigma and um, not really understanding what dementia is or being very prejudiced against having dementia. So at the moment, um, we've been talking to Arabic people and they've been telling us how terrifying dementia is how it's a regression to childhood, how it's a mental illness, how, you know, they're so ashamed of the condition they couldn't possibly have it and they wouldn't, they would hide it and it would be very difficult to, you know, go and talk to the doctor about it because it's so shameful and it'd be very difficult if their parent had it to get their parent to consider getting a diagnosis of dementia. Mm. And does that seem to happen across many cultural groups? Yeah. So we've also talked to the Greek, Chinese and Italian communities. And there's also stigma in those communities. I think that those communities, the, the community groups who work with older people have done quite a lot of education over the last 10 years. And the you know older people have a, a bit more of an understanding about what dementia is or, and that there's help available. Um, so it probably depends on the, the how established communities and what services there are to support community education around dementia, as well as um, health literacy and, and education generally, I guess, in those communities about how scientific or how much traditional beliefs kind of come into play when they think about illness, particularly mental illness. It'd be interesting to know whether you get a sense that the word dementia might mean different things in different languages and whether that has any impact on how people perceive a diagnosis of dementia in that country, for example. I I can only talk about Chinese. Uh, So in Chinese, I guess the translation of the traditional word for dementia is is stigmatised in itself as kind of like an old, crazy person. So... I don't know what dementia means in other languages, but I would suspect that it probably has stigmatised meanings as well. And when you talk about assessing people from culturally and linguistically diverse populations, one of the things I've also noticed recently is that the level of education that many people experienced is quite So a lot of people maybe only went to school until they were 13 or 14, perhaps didn't learn reading and writing, especially not in in English, even if they did learn it in in their own language. And that obviously affects our assessment when we're doing a cognitive screening, for example. It can be quite difficult to assess somebody. Are there any sort of adjustments that need to be made or considerations in, in that regard? Yeah, so we know that the MIDI mental, you know, one of the common cognitive screening tools is biased against people with low education and biased against people who didn't speak English as a first language. 
I always suggest that people use the RUDAS, which is another cognitive screening tool developed in Australia, which is more culture and education fair. It's all available online, including some training videos, and you can do it with an interpreter if you need to as well. Yeah, I've, I've done that one with an interpreter a few times and I'm slowly learning the words for soap, tea and um, whatever the three <laughs> things that you need to remember are in various different languages. Um, but the RUDAS I do find is quite a nice cognitive screening tool to use because it is quite conversational and it is easy to explain to an interpreter what you need to say without them getting confused about helping the person as well. So it's quite direct in terms of the, the questions that are asked on that tool. So that is quite a useful one. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, Steph, about the interpreters as well. We've got a project at the moment to train interpreters on, on, on interpreting for cognitive screening and your point about kind of briefing the interpreter so that they don't try and help the person answer the questions is an important one. If not, you'll see the interpreter trying to help them and we don't want them to help them answer the questions. Yeah, it's quite, once you get used to using interpreters, you get a sense of the ones that are being too helpful and, and the ones that are just interpreting exactly as it's said. So, um, But if you don't understand what they're saying, you don't know how much of it is assistance sometimes. So that's quite a challenge as well. One of the other things that I'm uh, interested to know about in your research, have you found anywhere that um, the health practitioners themselves pose a barrier to getting the diagnosis? I know that a couple of the patients I've seen over the last six months, their GPs weren't happy to refer them to a memory clinic because of their own perhaps stigma and biases. I just wondered whether that was something you'd come across Oh, yeah. So we've heard many stories where people have gone to their GP, you know, complaining about memory or other kind of thinking difficulties and the GPs dismissed it as normal aging. Um, we've also, I guess, heard stories the other side about GPs and, and families particularly kind of working together to encourage the person to get assessed uh, and you know, lovely stories, I guess, about the GP couching the cognitive screening and history around the context of a health checkup. So it kind of destigmatizes the, the testing a little bit and, and really emphasizing that if we figure out what's what's happening, that we can help you manage better. So um, GPs can be a barrier, but GPs are also a great kind of resource in supporting people who might be I'm hesitant to get a diagnosis to, to getting assessed. That's one of the things that we're really advocating through the work that we're doing with this podcast is the concept of perhaps a brain health check so that you talk about it in the same way that you talk about a heart health check. And that way people don't feel as stigmatized because it's something that you're doing for everybody because everybody has a brain and it's just a routine thing. I love the idea of a brain health check. And Sometimes the diagnosis, if the person doesn't want to know it, I think we can respect that, but that it is useful for the carers to understand what's going on as well. And, you know, the carers can know the diagnosis. Yes, and that, that helps with them uh, understanding the trajectory and, and, and when they might need to access more help and support. I've certainly found as well working in the community this past six months that there are a lot of culturally appropriate uh, community groups to access in, in various areas. And it's about knowing how to plug people into those services. And we have specific meal services for various cultural groups, as well as 
social groups and also some really helpful support groups who will go out and speak to relatives and carers and families and, and really help them to guide them through how to access further care and support. I think that there's this belief that you don't want someone from outside your culture to help you know, you're failing in your duty to the person, you're going against your cultural values by getting paid, you know, staff to help. But if it's introduced as a trusted person from within their community who can be sensitive in the support they provide, you know, culturally specific community groups are a great service and often are when, when the person gets to know them, they're a great kind of ongoing source of support and resource for the person with dementia and their carer. So I I was so struck through that interview, the parallels between what we've spoken about in previous episodes about person-centered care while uh, thinking about people living with dementia and their families and the uh, how the importance of that was highlighted for culturally and linguistically diverse groups. Marita, if I can ask you first, this, this concept about meaning, what, what dementia means, um, I, I was struck by that and interested in your thoughts and experience about how this might vary for different groups. This this happens across all cultures, right? So even in our very Anglo-Saxon culture, we have a lot of these same barriers. And certainly um, stigma, which um, Lee Fei raises, is one of the biggest ones that we, I think we all face. And I would have to say um, in my practice, the families um, from the more sort of culturally diverse backgrounds, you do see a stronger sense of the children really wanting to conceal the diagnosis and really want to protect their parents from, from the diagnosis. You know, that can make working with the person uh, a little bit difficult because, you know, you, you can't mention things, you know, can't mention the word. You've got to kind of couch things around there. I was really um, sort of provoked to have a look around at what was out there for these families. And I did find these great little videos on Dementia Australia that were are called It's Not a Disgrace, It's Dementia. And they're lots of little short videos in lots of different languages. And I reckon that they might be a really good way maybe to start with the children just to say, look, do you want to have a little look at this video and see what you think? And then maybe that could be a way of of talking to the parents if 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 they think, you know, that that's appropriate. Obviously, it's up, up to them to decide. But it does just put that extra layer of complexity onto a a condition that's already quite complex. And I think that highlights also the amount, well, two things really. This takes time. So when you're working with people with dementia and their families, it takes time. And also that dementia affects not only the person, but their family and people around them. I love that thing. It's not a disgrace, it's dementia. What what a fantastic idea. We'll put a link to that in our show notes to those videos, because I think that'll be a great resource. Steph, if I can bring you back in here now, I was also struck by uh, your conversation with Lee Fei Lo around the impact of 
education and language on the assessment of people who may have a dementia. And I'm interested in your experiences of uh, how you might make allowances for that beyond using RUDAST rather than the MMSE as a cognitive screening test. What other strategies do you use when uh, working with people who have either poor English or poor educational backgrounds or both? Well, I mean, I think this just highlights again how cognitive screening tools are just that. And really, it's about trying to take a really good history from the person and try and find out what's actually happening for them in, in their own you know, context really, because these tools all have their limitations and they definitely have limitations. You know, if, if you can't see very well, um, then you're not going to do very well on a cognitive screening test. So it's not just about sort of your level of education. I think you can still use things like the mocker as well. Um, and that, that might be appropriate, but not everyone has to have a cognitive screening tool used if it's not going to actually be advantageous for them. Because some, some people, it will be a disadvantage. You might come up with a lower score just because of you know how old you were when you left school and I think it's really interesting talking about literacy generally you know we often talk about whether or not people you know have the skills for reading and writing but we don't often talk about health literacy and that really plays a massive part in people's understanding of disease and I think that comes across in lots of different conditions and it's something as health professionals we really need to be aware of that that when we're talking about anything really what what is the other person's understanding of what we're talking about that goes back to what you were saying Marita about you know, families own barriers or concerns about, you know, having that diagnosis that might come down to their own health literacy and, and what they understand by what a diagnosis actually means for that person. So it's all about the language that we use and explaining things. And, and as you say, Hilton, taking that time to really break things down so that so that people have a good understanding of what's going on. And I think I was reflecting also during that conversation around the parallels between uh, what we've learned over the last 12 months with regard to COVID and vaccination and cultural and linguistic diversity and, and what Lee Fay was speaking about with regard to dementia. And Steph, this uh, point you raised about culturally specific groups doing some of the education and improving health literacy. We've certainly seen that it's improved uptake of the COVID vaccine by having some of that education done within community groups. And you mentioned that you've helped some of your patients to access uh, local community services. How did you go about doing that? And what have some of the benefits have been? Well, I found the best resource for this is actually um, the social workers who work within some of the local services. So there are often social workers who work alongside the aged care assessment team, for example, or um, in the service that I was working in, the multidisciplinary service. There were some excellent social workers who knew all about the groups um, to, for our local area. But as an example, um, here in Adelaide, we have a, quite a high population of people who've moved here from from Italy and there are several Italian specific groups where the language spoken um, at some of the coffee mornings and social groups that they organize is all in Italian um, they have 
you know, games that are all played in a, with Italian speakers. And so those workers who work there have a good understanding of dementia as well and are able to break down some of that stigma that might be happening in the community. And I think it can be hard to find out. I didn't know about all of these groups until I started working within the organisation. But now I know who I would contact to find out about them. And organisations such as COTA, which is a national organisation, they have a culturally and linguistically diverse person who works within, you know, within their organisation who can put you in touch with groups that might be relevant. But there's one for everybody, I think, out there. Marita, you work in Melbourne. What's your experience been? Look, for the most part, I'd have to say the the people that I'm caring for that are living with dementia, who are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, have very extended families. And so they can provide a lot of the care. I think the biggest difficulty that I have, and, and this is with all people living with dementia, to be honest, is forecasting the transition, or, well, that there will be a time that they'll probably need to transition into care. And often it's a situation of the kids saying, oh, no, look, mum and dad are fine at the moment and we pop in and we do this and we do that. And it's that when you can see the writing on the wall that there's going to be a time they pop in and someone's going to be on the floor or something's going to have happened that they haven't been able to preempt, but you as the the doctor can preempt. And that's probably the thing I find most challenging and sort of listening to Steph talking, it's really prompting me to think I'm going to have to go back to my workplace actually, maybe in conjunction, we've got a terrific aged care practice nurse and start actually looking at where some of those resources are because it's always this sort of tightrope I feel like I'm um, balancing because I actually don't know the resources that maybe we could put in to add on top of the what the family are doing. I mean, the family are often very resistant, but maybe that's because we just don't offer the right services. Yeah, I think that highlights the point of if you don't know, you don't know, and it, and it takes time to go and look. And working in a rural sort of regional area, it's different again because they're might be just isolated pockets of families from different backgrounds. And there are also a higher proportion of Indigenous families uh, whose needs are quite different. So uh, we're hoping to do an episode in the future uh, looking specifically at Indigenous populations around Australia because their needs are unique and important as well. So Lee Fay spoke a little about how the GP themselves can be an enabler of good care and good explanations about dementia, but that they may also be a, a barrier because of their own perceived stigma about dementia. Marita, I was interested in your thoughts about that. She talked about the fact that um, people can present to their GP with issues around memory or cognition, and GPs can often dismiss this as normal ageing. Look, it's not surprising because um, most doctors graduate with a very poor level of knowledge around dementia in Australia. I mean, in other countries as well, but primarily Australia. And that's partly because we're just becoming a, a really ageing population. So we know that the level of education and training that doctors get is really substandard. So it's it's no surprise that people 
struggle with diagnosing this condition and recognising it as a condition. And that's really what's motivated us to do the work we do and why we've been so excited that DTA have supported this podcast because we're really hoping we can get some knowledge out to all our colleagues. And um, with knowledge, we know comes confidence and a change in attitude. So, you know, I think it's, while it's upsetting to hear things like this, I think it's really important that we, you know, identify this as an issue and that we really try and raise people's understandings and awareness of dementia and start reducing some of the stigmas. Unless you look at yourself and you look at your own biases and you look at your own barriers, then you never really will grow. Like, I think it's okay to recognise some of these negative things because only from that can you become more positive and have a change in outlook and challenge some of those stigmas. So I think it's about self-reflective practice and, you know, really looking at ourselves and what might be affecting you know, how we interact with our, you know, the people that we care for, really. And one of the things that, uh, as Marita said, that we're so excited about is that we have done research into the impact of the training that we've offered through Dementia Training Australia. And we know that through this research that it does change attitudes towards caring for people living with dementia, both for GPs who are in training and experienced GPs. And we can put a link to some of that research material in the show notes section of this episode. So why don't we move on now and hear the rest of the interview with Lee Fei Lo. One of the other interesting cultural aspects I've noticed as well is the the way that families, the way that it's kind of expected within certain cultural groups, how the family should take on the responsibility of looking after the person living with dementia and the expectation that's put on those carers, which causes quite a lot of carer stress because a lot of carers now are working perhaps full time and also feel this sense of responsibility that it's their job to to care for their loved one i'm sure it happens in across all groups but i see it a lot in in italian and greek families maybe because that's how their family setup is i don't know whether that and it can be quite difficult to help that carer engage other services because they really feel they need to be the ones doing it yeah i'm chinese and when i was brought up you know my mother always said i look after you when you're young and then when you're old when when i'm old you've got to look after me and you know this expectation that they would move in together you know that that we would be there and we would care for them and it's difficult to figure out how you fulfill that expectation while you know, not burning out while getting the support that you need, including paid help. And I think that these are conversations that, you know, as health professionals, we have with families to help them figure it out because there's no right or wrong answer. It's a conversation that each family needs to think through. Mm. And certainly sometimes it can be a barrier for people needing, if they need to go into residential facilities, that can be a big barrier if there's a, a strong feeling of sense of duty either way, you know, on either the carer or the person living with dementia. It can sometimes delay that and sometimes might end up with them ending up in hospital prematurely because they couldn't get to that point. So having that conversation so that it's kind of out there and people are talking about it earlier on in the the process might help with some of that, I think. Yeah. And it's a whole family conversation because even though there might be a 
a main carer or supporter. The whole family is involved and often the person or the, the, the couple who decide that mum or dad, you know, it's we can't manage anymore, they get judged or criticised quite strongly by the rest of the family, even though they're saying we can't do this anymore, we can't do this well or safely. So it's a whole family conversation that needs to happen. So are there any strategies that we should be doing as GPs to help people from culturally and linguistically diverse groups access better care for either a diagnosis or, or even when they have a diagnosis? Are there any other things that we should be doing or any advice that you would give a jobbing GP like myself? I think that what you said earlier about knowing your local culturally specific services is really important for someone from that culture. If you can offer uh, someone who speaks their language, who understands their culture as a service, rather than the expectation that they get, you know, a, an Australian mainstream service. We know that ethno-specific services, both home care and residential care, are more acceptable to the older person and their family. Um, so just having that knowledge and being able to even say, and, you know, Nina from Italian services will get in touch with you, kind of makes that makes it more acceptable to the person to take up that service. So I think GPs knowing their local area, knowing who to refer to, that's really helpful um, for um, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds because it's really hard otherwise to find those appropriate services. Mm, it's even hard. I mean, I, I've had great exposure from doing this job I've been doing, but when you're in your clinic, it's hard to f- access to work out where to find those services. But now I know that they exist. Um, I'm spreading the word to other people, but it can be quite difficult because there's, there's so many different populations um, and different cultural groups, but there are lots and lots of services out there, I think. Dementia Australia also have translated information on their website and, you know, failing local services, sending them there to get resources in language is helpful. There's also a series of videos made by Moving Pictures, which have information about dementia in Arabic, Cantonese, Mandarin, Hindi, Tamil, and I think they're adding more languages. So it's a good resource for carers who don't speak English to learn more about dementia. The, the bigger communities have culturally congruent kind of day programs and even kind of a carer support groups. So really tapping into those community groups make a big difference. One other thing I've noticed a lot as well is the, because of the time when people moved here from Europe or wherever, they often moved without family on their own and sometimes having experienced quite significant trauma. Quite a few of the people that I've seen over the last six months have been in domestic violent relationships or had or experienced quite a lot of home violence, which has impacted on their presentation as well and also impacted on their willingness to engage with services. So that I found a challenge and I'm sure it's probably relevant with people who are migrating now who are coming you know, as refugees from other countries. I guess it's just important to remember that really do a good person-centred history about where that person has come from because all of those experiences will impact on, on that person with their dementia when they're when they're older. Absolutely. We've also observed, I guess, the impact of harsh trauma and how people with dementia behave. And I think this is more marked in residential care. And as you said, you know, some migrant groups are more likely to have experienced trauma, you know, trauma as part of the war, trauma because of their migration experience, 
trauma-informed care is quite common in mental health, but we're really not doing it a lot in terms of working with people with dementia yet. Mm. And can be difficult to work out how those past traumas might be affecting somebody's presentation today and how you actually go about unpicking which ones are impacting. Do you have any methods or any advice by which we might be able to do that a bit better? Yeah, so we have three things that we, we try and do. Firstly, we try and talk to someone who knows them, who may know their history. That that person may or may not know, I guess, if it's particularly really past trauma, that story, but your informant can tell you some hints. The second thing is just Googling the historical events and understanding, I guess, that person's background if you don't really understand the culture or when they migrated and have a guess at what events they might have experienced. And then I think thirdly, looking at their behaviours and kind of trying to understand from the things they're saying or the way they're reacting, perhaps, like what things trigger them. And while you might never really be able to piece the whole picture together, you might be able to figure out that possibly this happened in their past and that's why they're behaving in a certain way. So those three things, the informant kind of, you know, understanding based on the history, like what might have happened to them and then looking at their behaviours and trying to figure out what they're trying to express. Mm. And sometimes it's interesting when you get that informant history that the person giving it to you doesn't realise the impact of the experience that person has had on on how they're presenting today. I can think of one example just recently where um, this this lady had a very strong um, domestic violence history and her children were totally aware of this, but they were still having contact with their father and he was still having some intermittent contact with the mother. And I think they were they hadn't really appreciated how maybe that was quite distressing for their mother, even even though they'd kind of settled in their own mind that they were happy to have that communication. Every time he contacted the mother, obviously she had a, a very extreme reaction to it. So that's an interesting insight into the family dynamics and, and what might be going on. So it's really valuable to find out that kind of information. Yeah, and for example, this child who knows something about the person's you know, refugee history, they might not really have put that experience on on the boat or the experience of being poor or the experience of, you know, being put into a camp during the war on how they, you know, how they're acting today when they're angry or, you know, they don't want to do what someone tells them to do. Like they don't always put those two things together, but you can put it together as a clinician. So much to think about after that uh, conversation. Thanks for organising that interview, Steph. Uh, Marita, I might bring you in first, if that's okay. Uh, I was struck at the start of that section talking about the carers and the stress that carers come under. And and I began wondering if uh, perhaps guilt might be part of the stress. And we know in many community groups that a lot of their care falls to women, both caring for children, families, and then uh, caring for the elders as well. Uh, 
Lee Fay spoke about that expectation on her. So, Marita, I'm wondering about your thoughts of this thing about the burden of guilt that might fall for women caring for family members who are living with dementia. Well, you are talking to a middle-aged woman here, Hilton. You realise that. So, you know, we can talk a lot about lived experience here, but of course it is what we see in practice. So I've been amazed over the years when I will be seeing someone who comes in, you know, for their own health needs. And when you sort of scratch the surface and they start talking about mum or dad or a partner that they're caring for who's living with dementia, and sometimes they actually don't even quite comprehend that they're a carer. They don't see themselves in that frame because, you know, as Lee Fei talked about, there's this expectation that, you know, I look after you when you're young, when you grow up and I'm old, you're going to look after me. And it kind of is just this expectation of sometimes not realising what they're doing. And of course, you know, we're living in a time now where people are needing to work for longer. So you don't always have someone who is at home who has the capacity to be caring for their elderly parents or they might, you know, be working, managing kids, grandkids, and then trying to fit in the elderly parents. And then there's always this terrible guilt about looking for supports, extra supports. And then, you know, when you're looking at a residential aged care facility, that that guilt kicks in even more. And it is really important, I think, for us to to recognise that and acknowledge that this is a very high stress um, uh, situation to be in and and how to look to see how they can um, keep themselves well and how how perhaps we can better better support them and also look at maybe them talking to someone. And we do know that there is a role for CBT with um, carers in terms of being able to delay or defer nursing home placement. So it is a really important point to focus on. I guess it just highlights as well, you know, we talk about person-centred care, but maybe for that sort of conversation, we're talking about family-centred care and also, you know, recognising that there is a whole, you know, extended family and the relationships between those people might be affected by the commitments that they're having to make. And and that can, you know, cause quite a lot of breakdowns in, in family and relationships as well, which puts additional stress onto that carer because if they feel that the sharing of the workload is unequal for example um, then that further amplifies their their burnout essentially um, because they feel like they're the only ones you know you're putting in that time commitment so having a real you know as a GP we have that real benefit of being able to see the person in their family context as well and understanding all the moving parts and and how that you know, affects their situation as well. It's really important. So one of the other things you mentioned in the interview, Steph, was around uh, survivorship of trauma. I just wonder in your experience how survivors of trauma or uh, families who've moved to Australia for a better life and perhaps have left some of their other family members behind in less ideal situations, how that might play into the experiences of people with dementia, uh, both for the person and their family? 
I mean, I didn't realise how many people who migrated here, their first sort of landing in Australia, they were put into refugee camps and living in very cramped communities and, and not very nice situations when perhaps they'd come from, you know, post-war Europe, which was also, you know, really a difficult place to live as well. And so many people find living in um, residential facilities very challenging for that reason because it, it brings back all those memories of having been kind of feeling locked up in in some um, environment and so it's really important to think back to what you know that person's personal history where have they come from and what circumstances have impacted in their heritage to how they are today and it gives you a better understanding as to how people might be reacting to their environment or reacting to people who are caring for them based on what's happened to them in the past. I think when we talk in a future episode around some of the challenging or the behaviours of concern that we see sometimes in the residential aged care facilities, I think this is again where this will come up in terms of you know, getting a really good understanding of the person and their story and where they've come from and perhaps what's happened to them in the past that might sometimes explain uh, how they transition or or how they manage living in the residential aged care facility. So it's a really interesting topic. But of course, offering patient-centred care like we've been speaking about uh, involves applying these principles not only to survivors of trauma, but for people across a whole broad range of life experiences. And so, of course, you know, we know that trauma knows no cultural or socioeconomic you know, barriers. Trauma can affect uh, everyone and anyone. So, you know, that's something we need to keep in the back of our minds when we're caring for all our patients. Which leads me on to think about perhaps the, the final point for discussion today. I know as GPs, we're very interested in prevention. And uh, Marita, your favourite expression about anticipatory guidance, which I try to bring into my working life all the time. Currently, we're probably seeing people of the age group demographics who were perhaps displaced by the Second World War and came to Australia maybe during the 50s. They're often in the age group of people who are getting dementia now. But as time goes on, we will see dementia evolving in people from culturally and linguistically different groups. Perhaps uh, the current high volumes of refugees from Asia and the Middle East. And Marita, I wonder if you could give some thought to what kind of steps might you be taking when you're getting to meet these families um, before a dementia evolves to help prepare for that eventuality uh, for those groups? So I guess this sort of goes back to what Steph and Lee Fay were talking about earlier about trying to normalise cognitive screening. So I know many patients of mine, if I might forecast that we might do that, particularly if there's an indication of the 75-year-old health assessments coming up and I sort of forecast that I might be doing that, they'll, you know, go home and they'll practice their little hearts out. The woman down the road will give them the hot tips and they sort of come very fearful and over-prepared for this, you know, putting way too much value, I guess, on the cognitive screening test. So I suppose um, in that sense, trying to 
to normalise um, that that's, you know, part of what we will do as part of our care for the person. You know, just like we do, we've tried to normalise taking people's weights, for example, you know, where there can be people who can be very sensitive about that. So I think normalising our approach to how we're caring for, for people across all communities as they age. That raises another important point. I think, you know, educating and our own practice staff about other methods um, for cognitive screening. So using the RUDAS, for example, we talked a little bit about how LIFA is doing some research in training interpreters how to use them. Well, it might be helpful for us to to train up some of our practice nurses to use the RUDAS because it's always a good alternative that they could use rather than the um, MMSC, which, as we've already mentioned, has um, some quite significant limitations um, for people of non-English speaking backgrounds. And we'll put a link to information about the RUDAS in the show notes section for this episode. Thanks again, Steph and Marita, for an engaging conversation. And thanks also to Lee Fei Lowe for making herself available for that interview. Next time on Dementia in Practice, we'll discuss end-of-life care for people living with dementia. Yeah, this is such an important time for everyone. And as GPs, it'll be so helpful to know the best way to provide the care that your patient and family may need. Uh, And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at DementiaTrainAU on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you all next time. If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or a carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.